what makes a, a mom a mom? It's children, isn't it? In fact, we could see between the mother and the child a, a love that is almost unparalleled in any other human relationship. Something unique, something special. And so when we stop and we think about Mother's and Mother's Day, there might be different emotions that come through your mind and come across your heart. You know, for, for some of you, I say Happy Mother's Day and you have a smile on your face because you've got a mama here with you who loves you. For some of you, maybe even recently, your, your mom has gone on to be with the Lord in heaven and kind of brings a tear to your eyes. For some of you, you, you might not have known your mom, and so there might be some, some anger and some hostility in your heart. For some, there might come tears to your eyes because you wanted to be a mom and God just didn't have it in his plans for you to, to be that person in that role. But whatever the case, I think we can all relate to this type of love. Because really, I think that in the human relationship between a mother and a son, we see a glimpse of the relationship and the love that God has for his children. Now, I don't want you to think that I'm one of these weird new fangled theologians that thinks God is our mother. The scripture never describes God as mother, right? Uh, so you can read the shack and watch the movie all you want to. You might like it. That, that's, that's cool. But in the Bible, God is father. However, in scripture, we also see Jesus talking about gathering his children as a mother hen gathers her chicks. God longs to brood over us. He longs for us to dwell with him. He wants to love us, to shape us, and to mold us to be his children who impact the world and make a difference for eternity. But in order to become his children, to become a son or daughter of the Father in heaven, what we have to realize is what God's only son went through for us. His one and only, Jesus Christ. You see, we can all be sons and daughters of the Father in heaven because Jesus Christ, God's Son, came to save us from our sins. We were sinners estranged from God, not part of His family. In fact, Romans 5 describes us as enemies of God. But when Jesus came and died the death of an enemy of God on the cross, suffering the Father's wrath for the sins of the world... He was laying down his life for you and for me. And so if it stands to reason that this love between a parent and a child is something special and almost unparalleled in the universe, could you imagine the heartache that God the Father is going through when he sent his son into this world to save the world, yet the world rejected him and crucified him on a cross? I mean, it's just... It's hard enough for us to think about parents having to bury their children or hold funeral services even for an adult child later in life. God the Father goes through emotional heartache, spiritual anguish over the giving of the life of His Son. But He did so to gain more sons and daughters. I want you to look with me, if you will, in Mark chapter 12 this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 11 together. And study a parable that Jesus gave toward the end of his earthly ministry. As you've been walking through Sunday school the last several weeks in, in Mark, 
you've come to realize that the Jewish leaders are growing more and more upset with Jesus. Their tone, their attitude, their hearts are becoming more hardened, more violent. In fact, at this point, they really have a plan to take Jesus and kill him on charges of blasphemy, especially after his cleansing of the temple episode in Mark chapter 11. And so Jesus knows everything that's in their hearts and on their minds, and he shares with them this story. Mark chapter 12, verse 1. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So again, he sent another slave, and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed, and so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come. Let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, and they killed him, and they threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Father God, we pray that you would be with us this morning as we look into your word, as we hear from you. God, would you speak to our hearts? Would you help us to see your son Jesus for who he is, a crucified Savior and risen Lord? It's in his name we pray. Amen. In this parable, this story, Jesus really draws out a grave conclusion. That is, the Father will judge those who reject His Son. The Father will judge those who reject His Son. So I think Jesus is sharing this parable with these Jewish leaders and, and those there. And I think Mark records this episode in his gospel because we need to be reminded that in order to not fall underneath God's judgment, His wrath, we need to receive His Son and not reject Him. So why? Why does Jesus tell this story? Why does He draw this conclusion that the Father judges those who reject His Son? I believe in Jesus' parable we, we have four reasons for why the Father judges those who reject His Son. The first reason is found in verses 1 through 6. And it's the vineyard owner's forbearance. This vineyard owner might seem kind of like a fool on the front end of things. I mean, especially just reading through the story. 
He's an absentee landlord, which was common during this day and time. You'd acquire a piece of property, and because mobility wasn't as accessible as it is in, in our day and time, you would leave your land to certain managers or stewards to take care of your land. And that could be crops, it could be uh, a grove of trees. In this case, it's a vineyard where they would pull the grapes during harvest time and then put them in the wine press to make wine. It was a common practice. So everybody would have known and been able to relate to this story Jesus was, was sharing. And it's not that an absentee landlord didn't care about what happened or that he was lazy. It's that he usually had a bunch of property in a bunch of different places. And this was a way to both provide for himself and also take care of some of the local residents in the area. They have a place to live. They have a job to work. They would be able to make money and provide for themselves. So he wasn't a fool for leaving. Rather, he was stewarding his land wisely. And something happens. It's time to gather in the harvest to reap the bounty of the produce. And so he sends out a slave to the vineyard to, to go talk to the vine growers and, and get the produce. What did they do to that first slave in verse 3? They beat him. They sent him back to his master. And so the, the master decides, well, maybe they were just having a bad day. Or maybe I sent the wrong person. So he, he sends him another one, a slave. This guy, that they wound in the head. Potentially a lethal blow, but didn't quite kill him. They treated him shamefully and then sent him on his way. And so they sent another, and that one they killed. And then they sent many more others. They beat some and they killed others. You might think that this vineyard owner is kind of, I don't know, what, what's the word? Uh, dumb. For sending so many people back, right? Why would he do this? But the vineyard owner was not a fool. In fact, he was long-suffering and patient with these people. Was he not? I mean, he didn't send slaves out there to go get killed. He sent slaves to go get his crop, his produce, from the vine growers. It wasn't a problem of the people he was sending or the fact that he was sending them. It was a problem with those vine growers who had taken his vineyard and were running it without his blessing. This story would have resonated with these Jewish leaders because it was a common allegory, a common comparison to talk about the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, as God's vineyard. In fact, write these verses down if, if you're taking notes. Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Over in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, Isaiah the prophet tells a similar story about how a man had acquired some land tilled it up, broken down the ground, and then built a tower so that he could have a, a, a place to, to view all of his land from. He built a wine press, and then he planted grapes. And he expected there to come a harvest. Well, those who he had put in charge of the vineyard didn't take care of the vineyard. So in Isaiah's story, when the vineyard owner comes to collect, there's nothing there to collect. And in the story that Isaiah tells, the prophet comes to this conclusion in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 7. 
For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, he found only bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. The Jewish leaders would have known this story. It was, it was just as common as we think of David and Goliath in our day and time. And so when Jesus starts to tell this story, it would have caught their attention. It would have piqued their interest. The difference between Isaiah's story and Jesus' story is this. In Isaiah's story, the, the ground didn't produce, and so the Lord came to judge. In Jesus' story, the ground produced, but the vine growers weren't handing over what rightfully belonged to the master. And you know, it's kind of that same way with God. This is what Jesus says in his parable. God in heaven is long-suffering and patient, is he not? I mean, we talk about forbearance. God is the ultimate example of that. Waiting, watching his children. Drawing them to himself with his loving kindness. Showing them mercy so that they come to the point of repentance and realization over the actions they've committed and the things that they've done. You know, in fact, I, I think we're kind of tempted to look around in the world around us sometimes and think, God in heaven, he's, he's just a fool. You might not say it out loud, but we all think that. Why would God allow so much evil and suffering in this world? Perhaps he's waiting on the evildoers and those who have inflicted harm and suffering on themselves and other people around them to repent of their sins. Perhaps it's not that God is impotent, but rather that he is willing and able to forgive those who will repent of their sins and come to him. And this is what Jesus is trying to get across to this group of people he's talking to. God will judge those who reject his son and he has the right to do so because he's not just flying off the handle all of a sudden. In fact, if you look throughout the history of the Old and New Testaments, God doesn't just bring judgment at the drop of a hat. In fact, before the armies of Israel marched in through the promised land and conquered all of the land of Canaan. You know that argument that the people who think that God is not a loving God bring up all the time? Why would God allow all these people to be stamped out of this land? You know how long God dealt with the sin in the land of Canaan, this land of promise? Where people were sacrificing their children to false gods like Molech and living in absolute immorality and adultery and fornication? 400 years from the time he promised Abraham that the children of Israel would go and take the promised land. It's not that God's a fool. It's that he's waiting and willing to forgive those who will repent. But still, these Jewish leaders in this passage, they, they didn't repent. The story that Jesus tells the, the vine growers, they don't repent. They, they just pass over this vineyard owner's forbearance like it's not a big deal at all. In the story that Jesus tells, when it comes to verse 6, after he sent a number of slaves to go back and gather the produce from his vineyard, he has an idea to send a beloved son. That word beloved is meant to help us see Jesus in the story. As the master of the vineyard sent his son to the vineyard to go collect the produce, so God... The Father in heaven sent his Son into this world to gather what belonged to him. And in the story, the vineyard owner says, 
Surely they'll respect my son. This thought of respecting a son is, again, not a sign of ignorance on the Father in heaven's part. It's a sign of his long-suffering nature, merciful and gracious towards us. So what happened when the vineyard owner sent his son in Jesus' story? What did they do to the son? They killed him. Which brings us to the second reason for why the father will judge those who reject his son. We see the, vine, the vineyard owner's forbearance in verses 1 to 6. But in verses 7 and 8, we see the vine grower's foolishness. This is absolutely ridiculous, is it not? The, the practice of the day is that if there was not a living heir to lay claim to the land, that the people who had worked it and worked on it and lived on it could put a stake in the share, right? They, they could become the owners of a vineyard or a field or a building, whatever it may be. And, you know, we, we don't know all the details of the story. We probably don't need to read too much into it. Perhaps they thought the vineyard owner had died. You know, I mean, they, they killed a bunch of slaves after all. Why had he not come back and said something to them? But their train of thought goes something like this. When the sun comes to collect, they don't think, oh, there's the vineyard owner's son. We probably better straighten up and get our act together. They think, man, this is the answer to all of our problems. Let's not listen to him. Let's kill him. If we kill the son then everything here becomes ours. He's the heir, we kill the heir, we get the inheritance. But how flawed their reasoning and logic was. By killing the son, they would not gain anything. Rather, they would lose everything. In fact, it doesn't just talk about them killing the son, but rather they provide him and the vineyard owner by fault with the most nasty insult possible. Verse 8 says they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Anybody old western movie fan in here? Yeah? After you shot a guy and left him dead in the street, the respectable cowboys would do what with the, with the body? They'd bury it. Or they'd pay somebody to bury it, right? Or they'd make somebody bury it, or they were going to shoot that guy, right? In this story, the vineyard workers just chunk the son out of the vineyard. They'll send him back to the father. They just leave his corpse out there on the ground to rot and decay. They disrespected the vineyard owner that much. You know, I think it's, it's a temptation in our day and time. I know it has been for me to kind of look around at people who have made just some, let's just be honest, foolish decisions in life. But at the same time, we go, well, you know, with, with the home they grew up in, they, they didn't really have a chance. Or with the, the stuff that they've been dealing with, well, you know, I, I could see why they did that. But here in this story, Jesus doesn't give an excuse for these vineyard workers and I don't think that we can really give ourselves or anyone else excuse when they disobey a holy God. In fact, I think that we need to see sin for what it is. An intentional grievance and very real defiant disobedience 
to the Father in heaven. And when you take that into consideration, you can see why God judges those who reject his son, can you not? Man, we had baby dedication down here in the front today. All those little ones, you know, still got the, the chunky little cheeks. And the little baby hair on top of their head. They're still cute, except for when they keep you up all night or they have a really poopy diaper. That's when we're thankful for Mother's Day, or at least when I am. But I remember when Mally Grace, our, our first, uh, first child, was, was born. And I remember thinking to myself, man, it's going to be tough to, to discipline this child when, when she gets a little older. You know, I, just, I loved her so much. I thought, man, how could I ever ground her? How could, how could I spank her? You know, how could I do anything like this? But then I remember a day at our rent house on Northwest 5th Street in town when I told Mally to go to her room and put a toy back. She left it out on the floor. And she looked me in the face and said, no. And I can remember all these thoughts that I'd had about, I don't know if I can spank this child. They were gone. I don't know what happened to her. They were just gone. So I picked Mally up and took her to her room and put her on her bed and said, look, you don't talk to me that way. When I tell you to do something or your mama tells you to do something, you say yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And so I gave her a spank. You know, she goes through the whole crying thing and yada, yada, yada. This is how the Lord judges people who reject his son. It, it's not that he's unwilling to put up with or forgive. It's that people so often and so many times say no. I'm not going to do it. How foolish is it for the creator and king of all the universe to be seated upon his heavenly throne who is perfect in righteousness and splendor and glory and for one of his creatures who is finite and imperfect and compared to him has zero power whatsoever walk up to God boldly in his face and say no. And this is what these vineyard growers are doing here in this story. The father has every right to judge those who reject his son. It's absolute foolishness to do so. And then in verse 9, we, we find the third reason for why the father judges those who reject his son. And it's simply the, the father's fury. It, in verse 9, Jesus asked the question to these folks, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others instead of you guys who thought you were going to get it by killing the son. You know that, that phrase you've probably all heard, it's, it's not personal, it's just good business. Well, this had moved at this point from being good business to being personal. In fact, the vineyard owner goes from being just the vineyard owner who's trying to take care of his land to the father who is bringing about retribution and punishment for the death of his beloved son. He was just. The vineyard owner in this story was just in coming to the vineyard and taking the lives of the vine growers. And it's not that he went off into nowhere like a vigilante and just started taking people's lives for no reason. It was that really in, in this day and time, especially in this story, it's kind of like the Old West and the Roman Empire. 
you dealt with personal problems on a personal level. You dealt with government problems on a government level. The vineyard owner had offered more people. He had brought his son into the picture. He was willing to still work with these people who had disobeyed him and defied him. But yet here, we see his justice demonstrated. He owned the land. He could give it to whoever he wished. He could do with it whatever he wanted. There's a lot of people in our day and time that say stuff like this too. They'll say, I just, Jake, I don't see how a loving God could send a person to hell for all of eternity. It's a good question, but let me ask you one that I think is a little bit better. How could an imperfect people have the audacity to point the finger in God's face and say, you don't love me enough? I mean, look, even from this passage itself, we see how much God loves us, don't we? So much that he sent his one and only son into the world, and the very world that he came to save were the people that killed him. It's not that God doesn't love us. It's that we refuse to receive God's love. It's kind of like when Bryson was offering this $5 bill to all the little kids. I was about ready to get up and take it, by the way. But did you see, like, the the desire to to receive that, but at the same time, like, the hesitation? Is mom going to get on to me if I run in church, you know? What if somebody beats me to it? Or am I really supposed to do this? Or maybe Bryson's tricking me? Or any number of reasons why they didn't come up? I think the number one reason why we refuse to receive God's love and we reject the saving grace of the Son is because we don't want to admit we need it. Grace is wonderful. But receiving grace means admitting how great of a sinner you are. And when Jesus comes to save us, he comes to save every bit of us. The darkest corners and nooks and crannies of our lives. And if we want his grace to come in and take over, he's got to take over everything. These people in this vineyard thought that they could run the place better than the master, the owner of the vineyard could. And that's really the story of those who reject God's son. It's that they don't want a Lord over them. Rather, they want to be the Lord of their own lives. But the only problem is this. People didn't create themselves. God created them. By default, he owns them. The other problem is this. People can't save or redeem themselves from their sins. God sent his son to purchase forgiveness when his son died on the cross for our sins. So really, Jesus made us and he bought us. And those who reject those notions are rejecting God himself. The father came in fury. And then the fourth reason we find is this in verses 10 and 11. Jesus asked if they've read this scripture, which they had. It's meant to be ironic. They would have known this scripture from Psalm chapter 118 just as well as they would have known this parable of Isaiah's vineyard from Isaiah chapter 5. In Psalm chapter 118, verses 22 and 23, and here in Mark chapter 12, verses verses 10 and 11, Jesus says, The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus goes from telling the parable to applying the parable. And he does so by using another illustration. 
that these Jewish leaders would have been very familiar with. Stones, during construction purposes, were evaluated based upon their integrity, size, shape, ability to be cut, and their color, weight, all kinds of different factors. And true masons, those who worked with stones in this day and time, knew what they were looking for. They would examine, they would go through the process of evaluating which stones they were going to use on which part of the building. And if a builder came to a stone that he said, uh, we can't use this, he would get his workers to set it off to the side. Jesus says the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This word cornerstone or stone in Greek is really just it's the word stone. It's the word for rock, lithon. And it could refer to the, the cornerstone where you would put in the ground or right on top of the ground and then build on top of. It could also refer to the keystone in a gateway or an arch or it could refer to the capstone on the top of a wall meant to bring stability to that wall and keep water from seeping down into it and rotting and falling apart, putting some pressure down on the archway too to hold everything in place. So I want to show you a, a picture behind me here on the screen if it'll pop up for us. Uh, this shows you the difference between these three types of stones that, uh, that people would have used um, during these building constructions. And so you, you see the wall there in the archway and then the, the top of the wall across. Um, the cornerstone there is set on the bottom of the archway holding up everything from the bottom. It's the foundation, so to speak. The, the capstone would sit there across the top, putting weight on everything underneath, keeping water out, all those kinds of things. But then the, the keystone was kind of that anchor point, that middle point in the gateway or the arch that would sit there and hold all of the, the arch in place so that you could walk through, which would keep the wall stable from collapsing and imploding. So a lot of times, we'd, when I've heard this passage taught before, I've heard Jesus is the, the cornerstone, right? That, that foundation piece. Which I, I think is good. But over in Psalm chapter 118, we find the psalmist talking about entering through the gateway of the temple of the Lord. And going to worship the Lord and bring Him an offering of thanksgiving. In fact, you know that famous quote that Baptist preachers always use during the welcome? That you think, man, who came up with that? It was a psalmist. This is the day the Lord has made. We rejoice and be glad in it. And so these people would come through the archway built out of stone to walk into the temple there to worship the Lord. Jesus most likely has in mind not the cornerstone piece or the capstone, but this keystone, the central part to keep the integrity of the wall and the arch all in place. The keystone there in the very middle, it's shaped a little bit differently, usually a, a little bit taller than all of the other stones in the archway, what a person would do is they would build up the archway and put supports underneath it, and then they would take the keystone, which is a very special stone, they would evaluate as best they could, cut to size, and make it, make it fit perfectly. Or, better yet, they would find a stone that they didn't have to cut, that they didn't have to shape, something that would hold and maintain its integrity because it hadn't been fabricated by man, and they would drive it down in, like a wedge, and it would push out and would hold everything upright and everything together. In fact, it's in, uh, in Jerusalem at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where some, some folks say that Jesus uh, rose from the dead or was buried in his tomb. Over the gateway of that 
church building there, there in the keystone is the picture of a cross with Jesus, the idea of being the cornerstone or the keystone. I'm going to show you a, another picture just so you can get in your mind's eye how this thing is actually constructed and built. This is a New guy, I don't think that Jesus and his friends wore blue jeans and blue shirts back in their day and time, but this, this gives you an idea of, of kind of this process. The keystone is key. It's a very important part of this structure. And Jesus is teaching this parable, and when he comes to apply this parable, he says, guys, the one that you've put off to the side as invaluable and unhelpful and not worth building with and important and insignificant, that is the one thing that holds it all together. Who is the cornerstone, the keystone? It's Jesus Christ. You see, these folks knew all kinds of stuff about God's Word. But they had failed to recognize when God sent His only Son into the world. God sending his son into the world is his divine great plan of redemption, yet the people didn't even recognize it or realize it. At the point, whether you take this as a keystone, a capstone, a cornerstone, whatever kind of rock you want to take it as is this. Jesus is central to God's salvation. The point is that Jesus is the one and only son of God. Some people don't recognize, realize, some people even refuse and outright reject God's Son, the one who holds everything together. He is the foundation. He's the focal point. The Father must judge those who reject His Son. There's no salvation outside of His Son. So I want you to think about this this morning as we wrap up here. The little babies, the little, little girls that you saw down here during baby dedication time. There's only one way they can be saved. By Jesus Christ. Even mothers, as wonderful and blessed as they are to us, to love us, to teach us, to raise us. Even mothers themselves, they need to be saved. And the, the only way they can be saved is through God's Son, Jesus Christ. Preachers need to be saved. The only way I can be saved is, is through Jesus Christ. It's not by sweet talking my way into heaven. The only way church members can be saved is through Jesus Christ. You, you realize that you don't get saved because you sit in a pew on Sunday mornings. You're saved because you express faith in God's son, Jesus, who gave his life on the cross for you. The only way that anyone can be saved is through Jesus Christ. Whether you're a Jewish leader or a Roman official back in Jesus' day and time or even one of Jesus' disciples. The only way you can be saved is through him, through faith in him. The same thing is true in our day and time. Listen, if you're here this morning... It's not that God hates you, it's, it's that he loves you. And the reason that you've been going through a lot of things in your life is God is just waiting on you to cry out to him and ask for forgiveness, repent of your sins, and trust that Jesus died for you and rose again. 
Don't be so foolish to stick your hand out and say, no, I don't need that. Because if you do, the Father will judge you. And that's not what he wants for you. He wants to love you. He wants to include you in his master plan of redemption. In fact, later on in the New Testament, we're not just told that Jesus is the cornerstone or the keystone. We're also told about our place in his kingdom. Peter tells us this in his letter, that we are living stones built upon the cornerstone that is Jesus. God made you. You are his and he has a plan for your life. Will you allow him to take and mold you and use you in his kingdom as he sees fit? Because really, that's what's best for you as well as what will bring him the most glory. Or are you going to reject him? Thinking that I don't need him and I can do things my own way, my own time, my own style. But I can tell you this. You can live like that, but only for a time. Only for a time. And then judgment will come. So who is the Lord of your life? Is it you or is it Jesus? Let it be Jesus. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father God, we thank you so much. The time we've been able to spend together studying your word this morning. And Lord, I pray that as we've sat here worshiping together studying your word that you would be with those to whom you've been speaking God, I don't know everybody that's in here and God even the people that I, I do know there may be somebody who has yet to receive Jesus Christ into their life as their Lord and Savior and so God I pray that you would convict their hearts this morning God I pray if there's anyone here who does not yet know Jesus as the cornerstone of their life. May they come to him today. God, I pray that you would be with each of us here who have already trusted Jesus, have built our lives upon him. May we continue to build upon that foundation and not take matters into our own hands thinking we can do things our own way now that we've been saved. When Jesus became Lord, he took over everything. So God, maybe there's somebody here today that just needs to turn an area or a part of their life back over to you. God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts as well. During this time, we're going to have a song of invitation. As this song is played, I just invite you to respond as God has spoken to your heart this morning. You need to talk to me about salvation. Or maybe you've got a, something on your heart, you just need to come up here and you want me to pray with you about it, I'd be happy to do that. Maybe you just need to stand up and walk down the aisle and come and kneel at the steps of this stage. Pray to God yourself and talk to Him about what He's put on your heart. As God calls you this morning, would you come to Him?